This is a Soulfire production. Welcome back to Get Psyched, everyone. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am so fired up to share today's episode with you. I'm sitting down with Lauren Gogarty, who is one of my professors in grad school and arguably has had one of the biggest impacts on my practice as a therapist and really just my professional life and personal life as a whole. She has been a sounding board for me. She's been such a guiding light in everything that I have gone through, and I'm so excited to share her knowledge with you today. We are talking all about trauma. So fair warning, this can be triggering for some, especially if you are wrestling with traumatic events of the past or present. So give yourself a safe space to listen to today's episode. That said, it is not all doom and gloom. We dive into ways that we can actually recover from trauma and treat the brain and talk about trauma from a neuroscience level. Lauren breaks it down, makes it comprehensible, and makes trauma clearly something that we can overcome. So I'm so excited for you guys to listen to today's episode. And if you get a chance, head over to Apple iTunes podcast app and leave the show a five-star rating and review. It would mean the world to me if you did that. And it allows me to have more conversations like this and more importantly, have the conversations like this one that move the needle, that provide healing and health to people to be delivered to more listeners. So if you have a second, head on over, leave that five-star rating and review, and I will see you on the other side of this episode. So what initially got you into wanting to be a therapist? Wanting to be a therapist. Um, I was a volunteer on the Gay and Lesbian National Hotline. And I did that for years. And I would go on Tuesday nights for four hours. And and I would talk to people from all over the country. And I, I was wanting to change my career. Didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was sitting in my chair at the hotline, finishing my four-hour shift after a full day of work, right? And then going in and having a, f- a four-hour shift. And I finished and I put my headset down and I thought, you know, I have more energy when I leave here than mm-hmm. when I get here. I could do this all day. And the light bulb went off and I thought, oh, I could do this all day. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> yes. There's something that allows me to do that. So I guess backing up the bus a little bit, maybe... Uh, entering to listeners who you are, what it is you do now, and then we can speed back up to taking off the headset and making the decision to be a full-time therapist. Okay, so I'm a full-time therapist, and my practice my practice right now is, is almost entirely the LGBT community. Um, private practice, uh, online because it's COVID. Mm-hmm. And then I also teach at uh, JFK na- yeah, uh, National does. University. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that for those of you listeners, that's how I met Lauren, and now, now she's stuck with me because I well, texted her. She was one so of my my uh, star students. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know for me, grad school felt like almost like a fire hydrant of just spewing knowledge, 
And then yes, post grad school, you kind of start to figure out, you like put the hose on and you start to figure <laughs> out how you want to funnel that knowledge into something. So working with the LGBTQ hotline, is that kind of what set you up to work with that community now? It is. It is always what I wanted to do. Yeah. Is there any sort of common um, common thread or common things that you see coming up in that community that we might not be aware of or not might not be thinking about? The common thread is is dealing with homophobia. Mm. So it's either your own home internalized homophobia, which a lot of people have, and then the experience of dealing with homophobia through your life. And that actually can be traumatic. Right. You know, social justice issues do show up as trauma in the body for people. And once I put those things together in grad school, you know, when I was in grad school and I took a trauma class and I was like, oh, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. Right. This is how everything fits together. All of the pieces fit together for me when I understood um, the neuroscience of trauma. And um, yeah. So what, for those of us that haven't taken the time to study the neuroscience <laughs> of trauma, yes. um, what were some of the threads or what were some of the aha moments in studying that that you were like, oh, this is the missing puzzle piece? I think the idea that your experiences, um, the experience of traumatic um, traumatic events, scary things, painful things, being hurt, being really wounded, uh, that those things have a really strong physical component, that they mm. change you physically, um, was the thing that, you know, that for me made me realize the reason these things are so treatment resistant, you know, um, trauma is very treatment resistant. It, it shows up as depression. It shows up as anxiety. It shows up as, you know, all of the constellation of things that we call PTSD. And if we don't treat it as, um, as physical, as opposed, uh, in addition to emotional and cognitive and spiritual, if we miss the physical piece, mm -hmm. we miss the whole thing. And you realize when you, get, when you get anxious, when you get depressed, you feel it, you feel it in your body. Mm. And um, because it changes us, Right? We are changed by all of our experiences for, you know, for good or for bad. And it changes us at a neurological level when we experience really painful things. And then we're sort of stuck there. Mm -hmm. right? And we start repeating things. You know, we're, we're stuck. The world just begins to feel like a, like a broken record. You know, our experiences happen to us over and over and over again. And we never seem to get better and we never seem to kind of get our shit together and, you know, get, you know, get where we're trying to go. Mm -hmm. And so tons of people that come to me in my practice are just, they're just stuck. And once we understand that a lot of that stuckness is in the body and we can start moving it, um, uh, people, people heal so quickly. Mm. Yeah. How often do you feel, and I know this could be a pretty anecdotal question, but do you feel like depression or anxiety um, get misdiagnosed and it's actually this underlying trauma? Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah. So how do you begin to bring, because I know until I 
started working in this field, I had a very rudimentary understanding of therapy. I had talk therapy and that was it. Like that's what I saw, right? Right. Two people sitting in a room talking. So, which is super helpful and that can help a lot of people. But when you talk about trauma being stored in the body and needing to treat it on a physical level alongside emotional and cognitive and all these different things, how do you start bringing the body into treatment? So I start with awareness. Mm. Uh, And so I, I teach my clients, I give my clients kind of a, you know, a course in the neurobiology of trauma as we go along. My clients walk away. I want them to walk away with the fire hose of master's degree level (laughs) knowledge. You know, I want them to get it. I want them to understand it. And as soon as you understand that the nervous system, one of the jobs of the nervous system um, is threat detection. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And we have this whole threat detection system. And when we detect no threat, right, in our environment, right, or in ourselves, when nothing is threatening, we go into the green zone. Right. Um, digestion turns on, heart rate slows down, breathing gets very even. Right. Um, our ears tune into the sounds of the human voice, mid-range tones, mm-hmm. and our eyes focus you know, six to 10 feet away. We're in the green zone. We can, you know, they call it rest and digest. Yeah. Right. I call it Netflix on my couch. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. As soon as we detect a threat, right, whatever that is, and that could be in, you know, in the movie that we're watching, Mm -hmm. right? Or it can be a memory that we have, or somebody can call, right? And, you know, and change that. So the threats can come from inside or outside, Mm. right? But as soon as we determine that there's a threat, we leave the green zone, we go into the yellow zone. The yellow zone is the fight or flight, right? And so it is hypervigilant. It's where's the threat, right? What do I need to do to um, ameliorate this threat? Mm -hmm. If we can't, so then we, you know, we ramp up, we stay in the yellow zone, that ramps up. We get more and more upset, we get more and more agitated, we get flooded with um, adrenaline, cortisol, we're, you know, we're ready to fight or flee or whatever we think it's going to take to survive. Right, and our our eyes actually dilate differently, right? We start looking kind of towards the horizon, we're not in that six to ten feet anymore. Right, and everything shuts down, digestion shuts down. Right. Heart rate and, and respiration speed up. Ears tune into very high sounds and very low sounds, predator sounds. Mm. Right. We are growls no or like or screeches. Screams. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we are completely geared towards threat in that state. Um, and then if either if we were gotten by the threat before, right, or if the threat gets us this time, we can go into the red zone, which is total shutdown. Mm. And those are states of being that the nervous system puts us in in order to determine the the best way to survive, right? How do we survive in this environment? And that's where we can get stuck. In the red zone or in? We can get stuck in the red zone. We can get stuck in the yellow zone, Mm. right? Uh, We can start interpreting everything as a threat. Our body will start interpreting everything as a threat. It will remember the threat. It's there to keep us alive. Right. Right. And we have a, um, a negative sort of memory bias as well. It is more important that we remember the poison watering hole 
right, than the one with the, the shade tree. Right. Right. And so we have these negative biases to the memory and, and our thinking, you know, the world, when enough bad things happen to us, we, we think, you know, the world is a, it's a dark, scary place. Mm -hmm. And so we keep ourselves in the yellow zone all the time. So the first place to start is just with awareness. What state am I in and why? Mm -hmm. Right. And as soon as we start to understand that, what does it feel like, you know, in my body to be in the yellow zone? Because that can be different, right? Some people, uh, when they get threatened, they fight. Some people flee, right? Some people crash very quickly into the red zone, mm -hmm. right? They collapse. Some people fawn, right? There's fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, which is uh, beg for mercy, right? right? It's kind of, please recognize our shared humanity here. Mm -hmm. Don't hurt me. Right? It was. I think you were the first person to ever bring fawn into my awareness but it makes so much sense i i feel like any if you were to watch or look at my netflix viewing history you would think i was studying to be a serial killer or something <laughs> because you watch these shows and almost immediately there's that fawning right yes. that trying to um not sympathize, but find the humanness yes. in your attacker, or like find that connection. Yeah. Let's come back into the green zone. Let's make it safe. Yeah. yeah. Would you, I know this is a little bit tangential, but have you noticed any gender difference there? So the fawn came out of a study done in Australia, and I can't remember the woman's name right now, um, but she saw that all of the fight flight research had been done on men. Mm. And so she thought, well, let's see if it's different with women. And she added the fawn response. That makes so much sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. And because, again, going back to my Netflix serial killers and different things, it was like almost always watching women's response. Yes. Um, maybe that's, you know, a bias storyline that we have, too. I don't know. But um it was very, very clear to me that I was like that. And for me, that feels so innate. Yes. Um, especially if my attacker were to be bigger than me. Sure. I don't know that my first response, if they were smaller, I might fight. Right. Or flee. But if I'm working with what I've got, I think I, I don't know. I haven't been in that position, but I wonder. Well, this is a really common misconception is that we go through a rational process mm -hmm. of deciding which thing to use. Our nervous system chooses for us before we're aware that there's a threat. Mm. Right? So you would think if this person is bigger, I'm going to choose something else. You might not. Your, mm. your nervous system, it, it's often what has worked in the past. Um, and a little bit of personality. And I'm not really sure why we choose what we choose, but the, the nervous system will decide for you which thing. So it could be someone bigger and you could just choose to fight. And it could be the stupidest decision ever. <laughs> right? But your nervous system chooses to fight because it thinks that is your best bet. Because you fought as a child and it worked. Mm. Right. I think that has also helped so much in my practice, especially working with um, survivors of sexual trauma. Right. That ask, why didn't I fight? Right. Because their nervous system chose freeze. Yeah. yeah. So how do you explain the freeze response to someone from like an anthropological level or a trauma level? So 
in the you know the classical example right is always a tiger right the tiger is coming to get you Right. And your system floods with adrenaline and cortisol, and you could run and you could try to outrun the tiger or run up a tree or you know whatever you're going to do. But the second your system perceives that the tiger is going to get you, it anesthetizes you, mm. and it paralyzes you. So there's a chemical that gets released when we sleep. It's it's something in combination with GABA, and it paralyzes us so we don't hurt ourselves in our sleep. Mm. And that will get released if we think the threat is imminent enough. Our systems literally paralyze and anesthetize. So if a tiger actually were to bite you right, in the wild, you wouldn't feel it. Mm. We're anesthetized to it. And so that is so common with, with survivors of sexual assault because the tiger does get them. Right. right? And so their system, once their system recognizes right, that this is going to happen, it paralyzes them. And they couldn't, they couldn't scream if they wanted to. They couldn't run. They couldn't fight. They couldn't kick. They couldn't do anything. They are completely paralyzed in order to protect them. Mm-hmm. Right? Their system is protecting them. Right. So then working on the other side of that, when you have that survivor come down and sit in your office, how often do you find that you are working with the shame that comes alongside of that. Yeah, there's so much shame. I mean, with sexual assault, there's shame because there's so much shame around sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also shame victims. And there, are, and there is all the why didn't you fight? Right. right? Um, we have this idea that, um, because we have this idea that we can choose what we would do in a threatening situation. And this is where, you know, the study of trauma needs to kind of get, you know, pushed out into the mainstream is this understanding that that we don't choose. Mm-hmm. Right? That our the animal part of us, you know, this is these choices are being made in the lizard brain, you know. Um, that makes the choice for us and and the entire goal of the nervous system is to survive. So, shame I mean, shame is, is most of that work. Can you explain, the lizard brain makes sense to me, but uh, for people yeah. who don't quite understand, they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> what? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Can you explain a little bit more of that? Sure, so this comes from uh, Dan Siegel's work, and he, he gives us a, a model of the brain um, that it's easier to see visually with the, he does this, this nice hand model of the brain. Uh, but essentially, um, he's looking at what they call the triune brain. And it's, uh, it would be uh, th- three levels of development in the brain. The brain stem coming up from the um, spinal, cord. Uh, spinal cord. Yes, thank you. Uh, the brain stem is the lizard brain. It is the evolutionarily the oldest part of the brain. It is just the nervous system. It's just keeping us alive and keeping us going. And we call it the lizard brain because we share all of those structures with animals all the way down the evolutionary chain to lizards. Mm. Everybody has it. So deer, right? Your dog, you know, all the primates, us. And it's ancient. It is ancient. It has been around. And its, its job is just to keep you alive. So it's keeping your heart beating, right? And it's also the fight or flight system. 
mm-hmm. right? It's the threat de- detection system. So that plus, you know, heart rate, respiration, keeping the body going, those together, the threat detection, and then all of that basic bodily function are ancient in us. Right. So it makes sense that that would be yeah. the, not only like the most rudimentary, but also the first thing that we go to yes. when we're in that heightened state of arousal. Yes. It keeps us alive and it has been before we were even human. So once, once a stimulus comes into and is detected by our threat detection system, mm-hmm. that lizard brain, yep. what happens next? Where does so it go? So what happens, so if we keep building, right, with the brain, we've got the, the, um, the brain stem. The next thing that we get to is the limbic system. And this is the emotional center of the brain all of our emotions. Uh, it's often considered really the right brain, the, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of the seat of creativity. Um, people call it the unconscious. It's where dreams come from. Um, it, is, it is all of that. Um, I think a dream state is a great way to look at the, um, to look at the limbic system, right? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't have any laws of physics. Um, it's just, it's, it's everything all together. Right. We, there's a little bit of memory in the limbic system mm-hmm. and limbic memory will um, it's like a slice of a moment. Like a, you'll remember the quality of light. You'll remember the way your clothes felt. You'll mm. remember the look on someone's face. Right? You'll remember all these things, but you won't you won't remember how you got there. Mm. You won't remember where you went and you won't remember why you were there. Right? There's no context. There's no sequencing. Right, because it's it's kind of right brain. It's creative. It's everything. It's all together. It's very holistic, right? And so that's um, implicit memory. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about implicit memory, we're talking about limbic memory. Then on top of that, the next layer, right, is the neocortex, and that oh, so the limbic system is also the mammal brain. We share all of those structures with mammals, and so that's why we can bond with our cats and our dogs and. Um, and you see, you know, animals bonding with each other, right? Even across species, because we all share these same structures of the brain, right? The, the brain stem and then the limbic system. Mm -hmm. Then there's the primate brain. And that's where we get all of our, our left brain thinking, right? All of the, you know, the, the complexity, the structure, the, the sequencing. Planning, procedural. Yes. All of that. Yeah. So when a threat is detected, okay, all of the electrochemical energy floods into the limbic system and the, um, the amygdala, which is right where the brainstem and the limbic system meet, right, the fight or flight system. Mm-hmm. So the neocortex goes offline, right? And so that is, you know, that is our, our memory, our meaning making, right, all of our structures, all of that, none of that is online when a traumatic event is happening, Mm. right? So we're not making logical decisions. Mm -hmm. We can't. Mm -hmm. And that's why we can't remember it. There's actually no electrochemical energy going to procedural memory at that point. Mm, So that's like the, I blacked out. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I have no idea what happened. No, you don't, because there was no electrochemical energy into the to the parts of the brain that could remember. Mm. You may have flashbacks because that would come from limbic memory. Right, you might have like moments, like flashing moments of something, right? A sound or the look on someone's face or, you know, like a terrible, you know, moment that you remember. But 
you don't have you can't put much context around it. Mm. So that's kind of where we get the um I would love for you to explain this a little bit further, but everyone's notion of like the PTSD flashback. Yeah. is is because of that system. Yes. yes. Got it. So something that you talked about at the very beginning and now that we're on PTSD, can you I I personally don't like the term big T trauma, little T trauma. Mm-hmm. I feel like it kind of implicitly pulls away from someone's trauma to right. s- call it little T. It gives you a hierarchy. Right. Yeah. Um, which I would like to think is not the case. Um, but, you know, kind of explaining the difference between an acute trauma, like a big event, right? The car accident mm-hmm. or the deployment or something like that in comparison to more like complex trauma that is seemingly you know quote-unquote smaller because it wasn't this huge event but it's happening perpetually over time right can you kind of explain the difference between those things or how they're registered in the body and right so how that's sort of you know classically talked about is if you know the tiger chasing you could get you right Mm -hmm. or you could run up a tree and then the tiger circles the tree Mm -hmm. and just keeps circling the tree And what happens is all of the electrochemical changes that are happening in the body and all of the, you know, like the adrenaline being released and the body bracing and tense and the the brain reconfiguring, literally reconfiguring to manage the threat, um, the brain will reconfigure, right? The system will, the system will decide that you live in a dangerous environment and therefore it must change. Mm. And so the the pathways for the electrochemical energy in the brain um, where they're not being used up in the, you know, the neocortex, they start to atrophy. Mm. They just dry up like water. There's nothing, there's nothing moving through them. Right. And so they get shallow and then they dig deeper and deeper pathways down into the fight or flight system. And so what we begin to do is, is the first part of the brain that is evaluating any situation is evaluating it for threat all the time. Right. All the time. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Right. So you're stuck in this, in this. In the yellow. You're stuck in the yellow zone. Right. And, and your so brain that's is rewired to put you in the yellow zone and keep you there because right. it thinks you live there. Right. So, and then say it was something more like the car accident right or the the one big traumatic event could you argue then that like you were in yellow probably in red during the event in in red yes and then the brain would re over here doing my hand model (laughs) for for those of you that don't know the hand model we'll link it in the show notes but you ideally would return back down to green when the threat being detected is no longer there and different things like that ideally yes so with complex trauma then this is my brain just kind of spinning off yeah i would almost feel as though that's harder to treat than the processing of one major event it's it's actually different to treat okay and it's also who did the one big event happen to Mm. because often it happened to someone with complex trauma Right, so you can have both happening. Uh, we don't get out of life without trauma. Right. You know, it, it is just the, the, you know, we're calling it, so we, you know, we've given it this clinical term, which almost has no meaning anymore. 
Um, it really, we're just referring to the terrible, terrible things that happen to us. Right. Right. The worst thing that happens to someone. Right. So it is. So what you're what you're referring to is is shock trauma, right? Versus okay. re repeated trauma. Mm -hmm. And so shock trauma can lodge in the body as well and get stuck there, right? That um, and so somatic experiencing. Right, which is Peter Levine, and Peter Levine. If you're interested in in trauma, he is, you know, one of the the Godfather know. of trauma. <laughs> he is, yeah. Um, so his book, uh, Waking the Tiger, is a, is a great place for people to go to read, and he is really looking at shock trauma, and so the entire field was developed from, you know, his, you know, a lot of his early work in looking at shock trauma, and so it still can be very hard to treat. Mm. And when you say who the trauma is happening to, one thing that has kind of helped me understand it is that trauma in my experience is in the eye of the beholder. What might be very, very, very traumatic to me might have zero effect on you. Um, so can you dive into a little bit more um, kind of what the rationale or, or or what the reasoning is behind saying like a shock trauma or one of these, you know, acute traumas typically happens to somebody with more complex trauma. What, what goes into that? So the things that, that would prevent us from moving back into the green zone, mm -hmm. right? Or the things that get us into the green zone, the quickest thing that will get us into the green zone is actually a safe other person. Mm. So if your nervous system picks up safety, mm -hmm. safety in the environment, so you're, you're moved to someplace safe and you're with someone who is safe, right? Your system is picking up all of these cues that there is safety and it will reconfigure itself back into the green zone, mm. right? And, but if you come from a family that is not safe mm -hmm. and have not built a community that is safe and don't live in a world that is safe, you're not going to come back to the green zone easily. Mm. And so that, you know, that's what I was referring to by, you know, by saying, who is this happening to? Right. Is this somebody who is held in a really warm, loving community or not? Mm. Right? Or is this somebody who has already experienced a lot of trauma? And so their system is, uh, you know, a little bit uh, primed. Mm-hmm. Right, for that. And then, yes, you're right. It is subjective. And that's something that's changed, I think, in the last 10 years is, um, or actually even the last five years, is to, to define the, um, when, when you're diagnosing PTSD, you have to look for, was there a precipitating event? Was there something that caused this problem? Mm -hmm. And it used to be from, you had to choose from a list of objectively terrifying events. Right. It has to be one of these objectively terrifying events. And now they have changed that and, and made it subjective. Mm -hmm. Was it a situation that you were personally were terrified by? Because you're right. You might be terrified by something that doesn't terrify me. Right. So then my brain goes to, because I've seen it happen time and time again, little Timmy falls down on the playground and instead of standing up and brushing his knees off and continuing to play, mom runs in and is just like anxious and smothering. 
how does that, when we talk about co-regulating to someone else's mm-hmm. nervous system, when you're like, oh my gosh, I just fell down, this hurts, and right. someone comes in with a more anxious or maybe in the yellow themselves, right. what does that do to someone's nervous system? Well, it doesn't help it re-regulate, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, yeah, we have a lot of learned responses. It's unlikely that mom is going to traumatize Timmy, right, for, you know, from that. But Timmy is going to learn a lot of anxiety. Mm. You know? Timmy mm. is going to find the world a little bit frightening, right? a little bit more frightening than somebody whose mom lets them fall down and get hurt and figure it out. You know, or, and is there, right, when they figure out, when they, you know, a child can assess their level of distress, right, right, and say, no, oh, I think I could just brush this off and go back to my game, or actually, no, I, I want mommy, mm-hmm. right, and so letting the child assess themselves in that way, um, you know, to, I, I know parenting is a, a whole other conversation. Yes, it is, <laughs> um, you know, so providing uh, you know an appropriate level of autonomy and safety right for for Timmy on the playground will help Timmy have a very resilient nervous system mm. I think that they talk a lot about resiliency in children mm-hmm. and less about it being learned as an adult that oh, we can totally learn it as an adult can you talk about that a little bit more because I feel like most most of the research I have read is how you know when we talk about areas of the brain that go offline and I know you and I have talked in class and in other settings about that massive pruning right of white matter that happens and how much harder it is to learn things after the age of 12 12 12 yeah um so with something like emotional resilience how do you start to learn that as an adult especially if you have this traumatic background so, the, I mean, there are a couple of ways to, you know, that you can learn it. One is um, modeling with other people, mm. right? Being around people who actually have a really regulated nervous system. Y- your nervous system will mirror that, right? We have the mirror neurons. Even if we don't have the experience ourselves, we can, you know, we can mirror somebody else's regulated, calm system, and we can learn it. I think they say... Um, for someone with insecure attachment, right? And, and that might be opening up a whole can of worms for us to talk about. But it takes about three years to repair your attachment if you were to marry someone with secure attachment. Mm. Right? So, you know, what we're talking about is um, trauma in infancy, right? So if you have these very early traumatic experiences, they're very hard to sort of get to. But they say that you can literally just mirror it just by being in relationship with somebody who is who doesn't have that you know that very early trauma Mm -hmm. you can heal it that way Mm. so that's one way so I was talking with someone about this the other day um, with a client actually and I was talking about um, they had their first panic attack and it was in response to what their story to themselves was, well, I was in this experience that felt totally normal. And then when they explained the experience to me and I reflected back to them what I just heard, I said, that sounds so chaotic. Mm -hmm. And what we kind of landed on together 
was, hey, like I, I hear that your panic attack was really scary. That sounds really scary. And I might argue that you're starting to recognize the chaos in your family system. Right. And your level of tolerance to even be able to handle that, your body is physically resisting it now. Um, and so an odd silver lining, but a silver lining nonetheless <laughs> to be like, look at, look right. at, doesn't your healing feel good as a panic attack? <laughs> um, but I equating that to relationships and we can jump into attachment if, if that feels good. Um, I, I won't label myself a, what attachment style I think I have, but, <laughs> um, to the same degree of that panic attack, when I have been in relationship with people who are more securely attached than I am, it feels uncomfortable at first. I feel like I have not experienced that or I don't know how to experience that. Um, so not so much the mirror neuron and how long that takes, you know, three years, but is that something that you find that someone with an insecure attachment style matching with someone who does have a secure attachment style, can it feel uncomfortable and chaotic and different to begin with? Sure. Sure, because it doesn't, it doesn't match. Your, your internal world is not matching with the internal world of the person you're in relationship with. Mm. And it can feel alienating and confusing and what is going on and you know, why, why are we not matching? Right. And, and that not matching can, you know, yeah be very uncomfortable yeah so here I am making all relationships sound traumatic <laughs> maybe I'm projecting my own experience here but um whether it's trauma or relationships um this unconscious kind of patterning right you were saying before how a lot of times um your clients coming into into session with extreme trauma are finding these things happening again and again and again. Um, why is it that it continues to show up? Well, if you're living in the in the yellow zone, mm-hmm. right? You're um, it, the yellow zone is both a, the yellow zone can become a lens, mm. right? You're taking in all the information and and primarily assessing it for threat, and and you're really biased towards seeing a threat and so you're going to begin to take a lot of things as threats and respond as if they are threats Mm. and you are actually helping recreate the constantly unsafe world that you find yourself living in so going back to something you said earlier assessing with your clients what does it feel like to be in the yellow Mm -hmm. um does that awareness then start to carry over to, oh, am I assessing this? Like, I'm going to check in somatically and what I am assessing actually a threat or is it not? Yes. Got it. Exactly. And because I love giving listeners kind of some take homes, mm-hmm. um, other than co-regulating with someone else's nervous system, what are some of the things that we can do to start moving back into green if we're recognizing that we're starting to flutter into yellow? Breathing. Right. The breath is is the place where we can intentionally um, change the state of our nervous system because we're changing the lungs. 
right? By, by changing the rate at which we are breathing. And that sends a message to the rest of the system. Mm. So it's one of the few times we can directly intervene with our nervous system and we can calm it down. Is that kind of one of the pillars then I think of any intro to mindfulness or meditation class I've ever taken that extreme emphasis on the breath? Um, I think actually the, the reason for the emphasis on the breath in meditation is that the breath is always available to us. Mm. Um, but it has this extra added benefit, right, of, of immediately calming the nervous system. Yeah. Um, and that, but there's all kinds of, um, you know, the breath is, is the first place to start, right? If, you know, if you can control your breathing, you can calm your system. Um, but then there, you know, there are plenty of other things, you know, any kind of grounding exercise, breathing exercise. Uh, uh, one really quick grounding exercise is to look around the room, pick a color, blue, how many blue things do I see in this room? And boom, right, you're, you're back in the... In the now. Back in the room, yes. Back in the present moment. Mm. And not possibly acting out of that fight, flight, freeze. Yes. Yeah. Got it. And something that you said earlier about, you know, the brain reconfiguring. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when someone's been in that heightened state of arousal for long, long periods of time. Um, I remember the first time you explained that to me thinking like, wow, <laughs> that feels doomed, right? Uh, that feels like, a, yeah. like, so you mean to tell me my brain is now different, right? How is it, what practices or what kind of things start to bring that prefrontal cortex back online? So that, that's something I wanted to, to talk about when you, you talked about the pruning and how hard is this, right? You know, how, when we've reconfigured, and I don't mean that to sound as dire right, as, <laughs> as it sounds. Listeners, you are not doomed. <laughs> no, you're totally not doomed. And that's one of the biggest sort of gifts of the, you know, the neuroscientists trying to figure this out and understand how we work in this way is they, they came up with... Um, uh, the plasticity of the brain, right? Mm-hmm. Neuroplasticity, the, you know. So trendy. <laughs> yes. Um, the brain can change and we can change the brain. We used to have all these ideas about, you know, when you lose brain cells, you never get them back. And, the, you know, the brain patterns in a certain way and you're stuck that way I feel forever. like that just feels like a dare campaign. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yes. We're going to scare them. Right. All you scare deadheads. Right. Yes, this is your brain. <laughs> this on, is your brain yeah, on, on what drugs. is it? Yeah. yeah. It's your brain on trauma. No, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. The brain can reconfigure, we can change, and we can intentionally change the brain, and it really doesn't take that long. Mm. So mindfulness practices are are you know, the quickest way that you can get there. Mm-hmm. And that is because the part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex that directs the attention. All right, so mindfulness is very simple, mindfulness meditation. You sit down, you focus your attention on the breath, and when your attention gets pulled away, right, so there's a pain in your knee, that pulls your attention away from the breath. There's a sound outside that pulls your attention. All right, you start planning, right, you know, what you're going to do tomorrow, your grocery list, that has pulled your attention. As soon as you notice that your attention has been pulled away from your breath, you just bring it back. Right? Very gently, that's all. You're just bringing it back. The part of the brain that brings the attention back right, happens to be the part of the brain that, um, that governs 
the prefrontal cortex. I mm-hmm. mean, that that governs the whole neocortex. Mm-hmm. And so you are you're you're building that muscle back up. You're pulling electrochemical energy to there. You're you are by yourself reconfiguring the brain every time you do that. And I usually explain it. Um, it's like going to the gym and doing reps. Right. And you just you know every time you sit and meditate. Meditation is really difficult. Yeah, <laughs> it's so difficult. Um, so you can sit down and meditate and your mind wanders the entire time, right? right. And then your the bell goes off and the meditation is over. But as soon as that bell goes off, you've just brought the attention back to the breath. You know, oh crap, I was supposed to be doing this. Right. You just got a rep, right? There, you, every time you sit down to do it, right? You are building channels back up into the neocortex. You are, every time you are reconfiguring your brain. Mm. Right? So if you don't have safe people around you right, to help you reconfigure, you can do it yourself mm. through mindfulness practices. It makes me think of two things. One, how scary it can be for someone living in the yellow to be asked to close their eyes in a room at all um, and focus on nothing but the breath. I would imagine that the sound outside that might distract my breath for a moment or two until I realize, okay, you know, my threat detection system is very, very low. Right. For someone living in that yellow state might completely throw them into another experience. Yep. Um, So, you know, walking meditations or Mm -hmm. fitness or other things like that, do they have the same sort of... Um, results? Guided meditations do. Anything, you know, like doing yoga, mm-hmm. um, as long as it's not like yoga for abs, right. you know, on YouTube. If Core we, power. You know, right? <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with those things. Those things are fantastic, but they're not mindfulness mm. practices, right? So you want things where you are directing your attention. So there's lots of guided meditations. Yoga Nidra is fantastic for that. And Yoga Nidra is clinically... They have actually done studies and found that doing yoga nidra, which is just a guided body scan, it's got a you know fancy hippie name. <laughs> right? but it's we love fancy hippie <laughs> names on this show. Okay, great. the more woo woo we can get, awesome, perfect. So yoga nidra all by itself can actually pull you out of PTSD. Wow. So the mindfulness really does work. It's just there's a catch twenty two, right? It's very very hard, and the more traumatized you're your system is the harder it is to do so mm-hmm. it has a catch-22 um, quality to it so that's why you want to be doing it with a therapist or with somebody at your yoga studio somebody somewhere who's trauma-informed who knows that you know your your ptsd can be triggered mm. uh, mm-hmm. by just things going on in your mind you know just memories get triggered mm-hmm. so somebody that can be there to help bring you back down should that happen um, yeah just get some help yeah Get some help with it. Um, The last thing I kind of want to touch on is this mindfulness piece. Uh, You and I were talking before the show how it was very, very hard for me at the beginning of Mm -hmm. grad school when people would say, close your eyes and go inside. We're going to, you know, we're going to ground. And I was like, "Mm -mm, inside doesn't feel good. Inside's anxious and scary and, and kind of crazy. However, when I would have a yoga practice, even like a yin yoga, that's mm. very, very long, yeah. 
right? You're holding poses for four to seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, having those gentle movements in my body was just enough for me to actually connect and start to actually go inside. Inside didn't feel as scary if there was some light movement or, you know, when I would think about breathing into my belly button or like having a very tangible thing instead mm-hmm. of just, for me, close your eyes and go inside is that leaves my brain to go a thousand different directions and they're not always the happiest (laughs) or the most grounding. Um, And so going back to the fact that trauma is stored in the body and we have to treat the physical body, um, how important is a movement practice or something that helps kind of move that energy? It's critical. Hmm. Right. So we're, so we start with the, with awareness, right? Like, like that's just because it, we're not going to start, you know, diving, you know, head first into the, into the deep end of the pool. Right. Right. There's no reason for that, you know? So just starting with awareness, like, oh, just, huh, I am in the yellow zone, right? Or, huh, you know, this is how I feel. Oh, I talked to that person and mm, I feel really tight in my chest or, you know, every time I have to, you know, deal with this situation at work oh, you know, my breathing gets really shallow, right? So it's just beginning to, you know, sort of, you know, they call it titrating, right? So titrating is the, the scientific word for like um, uh, like an eyedropper, right? Where you just drop, 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 just, you know, drip, right. you know, drip access to something, you know, little by little. So you start with that, um, you know, with awareness practices and just getting to know, oh, this is, you know, this is how it works. And then... Um, and then s- slowly start to expand that, mm. right? And so movement practices are kind of like midway through because what, you know, when we're sitting and we're safe and we're, uh, you know, we're okay, here I am, I'm breathing, I'm okay. But once we get into motion, ah, it stirs everything up. So, right, we, we start again with the awareness practices in motion. Mm. And then when we, uh, the next step is in relationship. Right, where we're actually in our body, aware that we're in our body with someone else. Right? And what is that? So it gets, you know, it gets more and more complex. Yeah. But we just titrate our way into it as it's safe. I feel like I have so many thousands of other questions, so we're for sure going to have to do another episode if you're awesome. open to it. Sure. But if people want to titrate with you, they want to work with you, they want to get involved, where's the best place to kind of find you or get connected? Uh, you can you can find me on my website, laurengogarty.com, or just Google me and, and my Psychology Today listing will come up and, you know, various other things. But I'm, I am accessible. There is a phone number you could call, get my voicemail, leave a message. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you.